Our scripture uh, for today comes from Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Um, it can be found on page 1918 on your pew Bibles. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll and look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Amen. The beginning of this passage, I think, is one of the most beautiful and convicting passages in the Bible for me. Um, but it's, and it's especially convicting for a pastor, but it's a little confusing at first, uh, because what the book of Revelation wants us to ask is, why is John weeping in this passage? What's the big deal if he can't open the scrolls? So let's try and figure out that, that all together. Now, the book of Revelation is just completely full of references back to the Old Testament. So if you're confused, it's probably because there's some reference to the Old Testament that you're not getting, which is one thing. I didn't get the reference at first when I was reading this. But, um, so in Ezekiel, there's a story about a scroll that was written on the front and on the back, like the one in this story. And that scroll was meant for the judgment of the nation of Israel. In this case, there are seven seals on the scroll, and seven is a number that's meant to symbolize everything. Um, so long story short, this scroll is, that they talk about in the beginning of this passage is the scroll that contains all the judgment of the entire world. It's God's plan for all of creation to be set right, for the righteous to be rewarded and for the evil to be judged. For those that are loyal to Jesus to finally find rest from all the persecution they faced, like we talked about last week, everything wrong with the world is coming untrue, and everything that God has promised us and everything that all of us have been hoping for in this world is really happening. God is coming back to his creation, and there will be no more war or pain or suffering anymore. And there's a sense, again from the Old Testament, that once the seals on these strolls are torn away, that everything that's written on these strolls will come true. These are the official decrees of God for the consummation of all things on earth, for everything to finally fall under the control of God and his king, Jesus. But there's a problem. The angel asks, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break open its seals? But there was nobody who was found worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. In other words, God is not returning to this earth to set the world right. The judgment is not coming, and all that we are hoping for is in vain. God's justice on earth is not coming. Nobody was found worthy to set the world right. The world is going to go on just the same as it is now, with famine and war and persecution and tragedy and pain and weeping. In the narrative of Revelation, this book paints the picture that no matter what happens, God is going to win and set the world right, saving everything from evil and chaos. Like we talked about last week, the message of Revelation was to a group of churches that faced real persecution. They lost friends and they lost friendships and relationships, and they were being pressured all day long to give up their allegiance to Christ and to pledge their allegiance to Rome. The message is that the puny emperor Domitian, who calls himself our Lord and God, is nothing compared to our true Lord and God, Jesus Christ. And that means that the emperor, who is only a pretender, will be righteously judged along with anyone who gives him their allegiance. 
For that reason, these persecuted Christians need to stand strong and not give in to the slavery to the powers of this world. For these persecuted Christians and for many Christians around the world today who face real suffering, God's return to the world in judgment and vengeance, as well as his comfort for his stricken people, is their absolute fondest hope imaginable. They have nothing else to hope for. That's why in the next chapter, in Revelation 6, it says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They were given a white robe and told to rest a little bit longer. They need and deserve justice for the crimes that are committed against them, but they have to wait just a little bit longer. This is why Revelation is full of beautiful emotional language for how God will comfort his church when he returns. Like, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every way, away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. There's nothing else in all of creation other than the justice of God and the comfort of God, that the whole, and the whole earth returning to God's good intention, which should satisfy this pe these people. Everything else is at best just a pale shadow and imitation of the real thing, which is the new heavens and new earth. And for just a split second of three verses in the book of Revelation, it looks like they're going to be waiting forever. That the promises of God have been ruined by human sinfulness, because there's nobody worthy in the whole earth that's to take the stroll and read it and to execute his judgment. How could John not weep, and weep uncontrollably and bitterly, if even for a few seconds it looks like that could not be true? What worse news can there be in the whole world that the, that the world would just go on like this forever, and that goodness has lost? And I think this passage is here specifically so that we can consider how would we react to this situation? How would we react if we found out that God was not coming back? And this is why the passage is so convicting for me sometimes. Because there's a lot of days where I put myself in the shoes of John here. I see myself hearing them from the mighty angel that nobody can open the scroll and break its seals. And I'm not sure I would weep bitterly. Sometimes I think I would feel kind of bummed and shed a few tears. Sometimes I think without really knowing it, you know, maybe it wouldn't be all that bad if things just continued on like this forever. Sometimes we go to worship and we get a few interesting tidbits where we rethink our lives just a little bit and we're satisfied for a week. Or we're sitting here in this world content with our newest Netflix shows or some other new entertainment for the week. We're content to sit around with our tiny little sins, trying to squeeze an extra bit of pleasure out of this life here and now. There's a new board game I just tried out, and it would be fun to figure out some of its strategies. I work, I hang out with friends, I go to sleep. You know, maybe the commanders will be good this year. Did you hear about the new corner they drafted? Oh yeah, and God's pretty cool too. What were you saying about those strolls again? What's convicting to me is that John, along with millions and millions of Christians who have real skin in the game, know so well that the world simply cannot go on like this forever. And they cannot be satisfied with Netflix and video games and pop culture and sports and a few of their tiny little vices. They need God to come to be with them and to comfort them. They need the whole crea creation to be set right. They need God to wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
to even think for a few seconds that the world would go on, business as usual, forever and ever, is appalling and would cause them to weep bitterly. They need God desperately. It feels like we too often just vaguely like God. Like the new heavens and new earth is just one more part of our retirement plan, alongside our fur 1K and a stack of mystery novels. As C.S. Lewis says, many of us get the issues that we face backwards. It's easy to think that the problem with us is that we desire too much, that our desires are far too strong, and that's why we eat too much or indulge in all matters of vices. No, Lewis says, and he's right. The problem is that our desires are not nearly strong enough. He says, the New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We're told to deny ourselves and take up our crosses in order that we may follow Jesus. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find, if we do so, contains an appeal to more desire. Some great desire will be fulfilled if we follow Christ. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and staggering nature of those rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too weak, or not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to make, go on making mud plot pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what's offered by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. And this was a really important idea for St. Augustine, the person on your bulletin, as far back as the 400s AD. He said that the reason that we sin is because of misordered desires. Sin is a result of love and loving and desiring small things more than they deserve. You really want your friend's computer, so you take it. But that'll make you feel disconnected from the God who said, do not steal. Nobody in their right mind would desire a computer over the infinite joy of God's presence. But the problem is that we're not in our right mind. We're easily satisfied by things that simply shouldn't satisfy us. And there's no problem with being content with what you have. God has given us great blessings, and we should be thankful for them. But if we find ourselves totally satisfied with this world, and if we would have a hard time weeping if God wasn't going to return, then it's true that we're too easily satisfied. Infinite joy is on offer, and we're far too easily, easily happy with the newest Netflix show. In fact, the Bible talks about satisfaction with really small-minded pleasures, almost like it's slavery, and it is. We have chains of our own making tied to the smallest crumbs of happiness when the perfect joy of God's presence is here. That's why so many Christians throughout history intentionally denied themselves even the most basic necessities like food or water for a time so that they would learn to desire better things. We need God to awaken our palate to something greater. So how do we make sure that we're not satisfied with what shouldn't satisfy us? How do we develop a taste for the new heavens and new earth like these so many Christians have? Many of the greatest things in life are learned tastes. It takes works for us to really appreciate and to learn to appreciate what's truly good, beautiful, and noble. Sugar is an incredibly easy taste to develop, but there are better things in life. If you gave a toddler the best steak in the world, they wouldn't even begin to appreciate how great it was. They probably wouldn't even finish their portion, and they'd be asking for sugar before they even get through it. If you always give kids the option of sh pure sugar, they'd always take it. 
but it takes work to develop better tastes. When you watch really young kids play sports, you'll find that they're often frustrated by all the rules that are involved. They might be wondering, why can't I just do whatever I want? Why can't I use my hands when I'm playing soccer? Why do I have to dribble when I'm playing basketball? Why do I have to run to first base and not to third base? And the reason is because the rules make the game more fun. It's not very fun to play basketball where you don't have to dribble or you can climb up onto the hoop. But kids need to learn that they need to develop a taste for the real game, rules included, in order to experience levels of pleasure that are so much more than they expected. Kids would be easily satisfied to play basketball without dribbling or soccer while using their hands. But eventually they get bored. But once they experience how fun it is to play the game the right way, they would never go back. And in fact, they'd be annoyed if someone insisted on playing the wrong way. There are some things that are higher and stronger pleasures in life that we have to learn to desire in order not to be satisfied with lower, smaller things. The same thing is true for desiring the new heavens and new earth. It takes practice to even hope for God to come and save us. It takes practice to make sure that we aren't satisfied with the small-minded pleasures of this world and instead have hope for what's most excellent in this world and in the world to come. There's an incredible joy that's on offer for a kid learning to play basketball, but first they need to train themselves to enjoy it by learning to dribble. There's infinite joy that's on offer for us in Christ, but first we need to train ourselves to desire the right things. And so here's three ways to train ourselves to love and desire God with all of our heart. Worship, prayer, and lament. First, worship. When we come to worship, we're hoping to encounter God in some small way, even here on earth. We have a foretaste of what it will look like to worship God in the new earth, where nothing stands between us and God. And in doing so, it awakens in us a desire for the new world that God is creating. And if that's the case, then we can't help but try to make this world look more like that world. When we worship and hear and see beautiful things, we can't help but want more. And that's the case with all beauty. If you really pay your attention to your feelings when you see a beautiful sunset or eat a perfect cheesecake or read a good book, you realize that you're not totally satisfied. You recognize that you're longing for something more, at the very least, because the beauty you're experiencing now is fleeting and it won't last forever. But the beauty of God's new creation will never end. When you hear the gospel preached, we hear how great God's love is for us and what he's done for us all throughout history. We hear about what, what he will do, and that gives us hope. And that's hope that not that things will stay the same and we'll get to watch more Netflix, uh, but that the whole world will be set right and that dwelling, the dwelling place of our all-loving and self-sacrificing God will be with us forever. Worship, more than anyone else, anything else, should awaken us to a, to a desire for something greater. You might have the experience of going to a really great worship service and then returning to real life and you feel a letdown. And that's at least in part because you're returning from a foretaste of the new heavens and new earth to your regular old world down here and you have to figure out what's next. Worship isn't effective if we leave it thinking that the world can just go on the same forever. It should awaken us to our need for God to come and save us to set the world right so the desires that we feel for God will be satisfied. Second, prayer. Prayer seems like a mysterious thing, right? Because you're talking to God himself, which is wild. 
Like the thoughts in your mind or the words that come out of your mouth are somehow carried by the Holy Spirit all the way to God himself. And God already knows everything that you're going to say before you say it, but you're still supposed to say it. I think one of the most important parts about prayer is that you're experiencing the presence of God here on earth. There's a weird sense that you know that God is really listening. He understands us even when we don't understand us. So Paul says, he intercedes with us with groans too deep for words, but he searches the heart and knows our minds. When we pray, we have the most intimate kind of conversation with someone who actually can read our minds. And we can't hide anything from him. God is here with us in our very hearts when we pray. Even now, we see him only in a mirror dimly. But when we really learn to pray, that awakens in us a desire for when we will see God face to face. Third, lament. Lament is the time when we recognize how broken our lives in this world really are. We take time to really see and feel the frailty of this world so that we can recognize how desperately we need God to come and set the world right. In general, we tend to avoid lament. We tend to think it's only Christian to be happy and that sad thoughts aren't part of the Christian life. But come to our Psalms Bible study and you'll see that so many of the prayers in the Bible are laments because they force us to be honest about the world that we see around us. It's easy to self-medicate when stuff goes wrong so we don't feel those unpleasant emotions. Maybe by throwing ourselves into work or binging a show so we can't be distracted, so we can be distracted. But lament is important because it reminds us that this world in all its sin and brokenness is not as it ought to be. It forces us to hope for a new world and trains us to desire better things in God's kingdom. In all of these things, I hope that as a church, we can learn some holy discontent. Recognizing that God has blessed us with so much in this world, but that this world is not our home forever. I hope that as a church, we learn to desire higher and stronger things and to bear witness to the infinite joy that comes from being in God's presence. I hope that we can be the weird ones who aren't satisfied with our video games or Netflix or food, but that we learn to love the Lord our God with all our hearts and to love our neighbors as ourselves so we can experience far better joys. Let's pray. Great God, at your right hand are the greatest joys. Break us out of our self-made prisons, which cause us to be satisfied with the smallest things. Train our hearts to desire your truth and goodness so that we would be made ready for your coming kingdom. In your name, amen.